Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. This is Shannon, and tonight I'm here with Christine, Amber, and Brooke, and we are going to talk about books that are somehow inspired by true events. Now, everyone sort of interprets this a little differently, like, you know, how much a particular book is inspired by something true, but these are some of the best that we came up with. So, Amber is going to start us off, followed by me, then Brooke, and lastly, Christine. But of course, the housekeeping information must come first. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Okay, good evening. So my first book is going to be A Net for Small Fishes by Lucy Jago. And I always feel a little weird when I say this title because fishes, like fishes, (laughs) fishes. Uh, So this is about two women in uh, Jacobean England, um, Frances Howard, and uh, who is Lady Essex and uh, a woman by the name of Anne Turner. And Frances, of course, is a countess and she's very rich. Uh, Or not a countess. I don't remember if she's a countess or not. Anyway, she's super rich. And Anne is not. Anne, at the beginning of the story, is a doctor's wife. And these two women meet And they are basically trying to make better lives for themselves in whatever way they can. And they, um, you know, they, they, you know, scheme and plot and and plan. And, uh, you know, for Anne, it's about, um, so I'm not really spoiling anything. Her first husband dies and she is trying to marry uh, a gentleman of the court who she has actually uh, been with for a very long time. And, you know, that will advance her uh, future prospects for her and her children. And um, Frances Howard is basically trying to have a baby, but her husband um, is, he's gay. Um, and he you know, will not and, you know, really cannot, 
you know, perform his uh, husbandly duty, shall we say. And it's just <laughs> how these women, you know, how they uh, try to, you know, go through their world and what happens to them. And it's um, the background is, like I said, that the Jacobean court. And so King James um, and, you know, one of the things that King James was really known for was uh, witchcraft and, you know, really being against that. And um, witchcraft does play a pretty integral part of the story uh, between these two women and what happens to them. So, you know, it's definitely based on true events, a really interesting look into kind of a time period that I haven't really looked at a whole lot. So it was, it was a really fantastic book. And again, that is A Net for Small Fishes by Lucy Jago. It's on my iPad. I think you'll like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'll like it. You guys, I think yes. you guys will both like it. Okay, so a disclaimer before I um, start talking about my first book. Two of my books tonight are not actually out yet. Um, one of them will be out by the time this airs, and the other one will be out at the end of the month. So somehow I have managed to have three books all released in April um, for this episode. <laughs> so my first pick tonight is Take My Hand. This is the second novel by Dolan Perkins Valdez, and it is loosely based on a court case um, in the 1970s. So this is about Sybil, and Sybil has just graduated from nursing school. Um, her father is a doctor and has always kind of wanted her to end up you know, following in his footsteps, but she has kind of a different view of the role that nurses play in the medical field. And so she thinks that this is really where she needs to be. So she is working at this like women's health clinic, it's, it's supposed to be. And it helps a lot of women who are living in poverty. But some of the things that it does, Civil has just really big ethical issues with, and she's not sure at first how to resolve them. So as we know, um, it was common practice to sterilize women with disabilities or women who were poor, women of color, um, all kinds of people that you know, somehow people in power deemed sort of not worthy of, of reproducing were sterilized. And so in the 1970s, when Civil has come to work at this clinic, she's asked to drive out to this very rural area and administer birth control injections to two sisters. Um, they are Erica and India, they are 13 and 11. And they are poor black girls. And Sybil, who is also black, is really struggling to kind of figure out where she fits into this. Like she has always lived a pretty privileged life. And so it's hard for her to fully understand what life is like for this family. But she also struggles because you, you don't want to give birth control to, to young children. Like one of these sisters hasn't even begun menstruating yet. So she sees, you know, so much wrong with injecting them with birth control when technically, you know, there's no need to do that. And she gets a little bit over-involved in the lives of this family. 
And then there is a huge crisis, which sort of spurs the court case that inspired this book. Um, she changed, you know, the names of these people and some events surrounding it, but she did um, get this idea from the court case. And so this is told in kind of a dual timeline format of, you know, looking back at Sybil's time as a nurse in the 70s, but also in like 2016, we're seeing her as a retired doctor who is sort of trying to find peace with you know, some of the things in her past. Um, this was a difficult read at times. I want to give content warnings for like, ableist language and racist, uh, racist language and ideas, um, also some medical trauma here. But this was just so insightful. And although uncomfortable to read at certain points, um, I think something that we all kind of need to be, be aware of, it's a piece of history that we don't look at a lot um, because it's, it's not pleasant and people don't often like to admit to some of the things that went on. But this is Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez. This looks Sounds super really good. good. Yeah. Yeah, she, she recommended I read it. And so I read it soon after she did and I, liked it a lot. It's amazing. So my first book tonight is The Patient's Secret by Loris Ann White. So this book is based on a case that happened in uh, Medicine Hat, Alberta, back in the late 1980s. And I actually remember this case. I'm not sure if it's because people talked about it when I was a bit older, or I'm not sure if it's maybe because when the people themselves, maybe it was brought up later, remembered this case. So I found it really interesting to read the book itself. So this book kind of look at the viewpoints of three, a few different people. So we have um, Lily Bradley, and she is a, a psychotherapist. And then we have um, Arwen, and uh, she is a kind of like a new person to the neighborhood. Her and her son kind of drove up and kind of started living in the neighborhood and kind of shook up everything. And then we also have um, Matt, um, and he is Lily's son, young son. So we all, oh, and we also have um, the detective. I can't remember what her name is, but we get her perspective. And through this all, the women, the three women, their lives kind of intertwine in different ways. So the book starts with us finding a woman, a dead woman at the bottom of the cliff. And we're wondering, did she fall? Did somebody push her? Like, how did she end up there? So Lily's husband, Tom, um, he's a professor at a university. He discovers the body of this woman. And so obviously he gets wrapped up in this, this crime because just there's some things that he says and some things that happen that are kind of suspicious. At the same time, Lily has some secrets that not even her husband knows 
about her past. And we learn that Arwen, this new person to the neighborhood, she knows Lily's secret. And she is trying to figure out a way to, like she wants to write a book about it. She wants to bring it out into the open, which obviously is gonna cause some big problems for the Bradley family. So we're kind of like wondering as this book goes on, like, did Lily do it? Did Tom do it? Like, we don't, we really don't know who did it. And so I really liked how, like, the atmosphere, like, I love how Lorthan White, how when she writes her books, the atmosphere, it really honestly becomes kind of, like, very set in, like, almost like a character in a way. Um, I don't want to give away too much. Like, I think it'd be too easy to. So I'm not going to say too much about this. But I really felt that she discussed the whole topic really well. Like, you get into this whole question of when somebody has, like, done something really, really horrible, and then they've served their time, do they have the right to then move on and make a life for themselves? And do we, as kind of like people not involved, do we have the right to kind of like keep them away and to bring their, like the bad things that happen, do we have the right to bring it into the light? And I thought this was a really interesting book. So this is The Patient's Secret, and it's by Lorith Ann White. Love her. So my first book for the evening is The Magnolia Palace by Fiona Davis. Fiona Davis writes these absolutely wonderful dual timeline novels. They're about historic landmarks, and she just really brings these alive uh, for us and uh, intertwines their past and, and a present. In this one, we are in the Frick Mansion, which is in New York City. In 1919, we follow Lillian Carter, who for the past six years up until uh, 1919 was an artist model. And she was very sought after and beautiful. She worked under the moniker Angelica and her uh, figure was on just lots of statues like from the uh, Brooklyn Bridge to the Plaza Hotel, she was everywhere. But in 1919, during the Spanish flu uh, outbreak, her mother dies. And her mother was, you know, her sort of manager, kind of, that was, they only had each other. And, and so this leaves her very much grieving and unable to take charge of her life. There's no more work. And there's this looming scandal that she is somehow in the, uh, in the eye of. So she doesn't have anywhere to go. She has to be unknown and unseen. And she stumbles upon a job opportunity at the Frick Mansion and she grabs it. And ironically, the mansion has uh, her likeness in it as well. So she's a little scared about this. She's afraid she might get caught, but she's pretty disguised and she doesn't look a whole lot like that, that uh, the statue. So she just sort of goes with the flow and hopes for the best. 
She's working as a private secretary for a very intolerable, demanding Helen Frick, who's the daughter and heiress of uh, Henry Clay Frick, who is not that much better in terms of his attitudes than his daughter. (laughs) (laughs) They're hard to deal with. And the more she has this jobs, the more she gets intertwined with the family's lives. And she gets drawn into a very uh, entangled web of romantic trysts and stolen jewels and family drama that runs very deep. So then 50 years later, almost, we are with an English model, uh, Veronica Weber, and she's looking for her own uh, claim to fame. And she wants to make a lot of money to help her family back in England. She has a sister with a very profound disability. And if she can send money home, her sister can be taken care of at home where she's happiest. If she can't, it pretty much means that she would go into a, a what would be comparable in the United States to a nursing home. So she finds an opportunity and guess where it is? Gee, it's in the, I don't know. In the Frick Mansion, of course. Oh. It's got to be in the Frick Mansion. It's been converted. It's not the Frick Mansion anymore. It's been converted into a very impressive museum in New York City. Uh, she, she got hired to do a shoot there. And for some reason, she's dismissed from that shoot. And then she's not happy about this. And she and an intern and budding uh, art curator named Joshua, who's very charming, um, they, they go exploring or perhaps snooping might be a better word in the, uh, museum and they find a chain of messages. It's sort of a, a sort of a treasure hunt they, that they find. They follow these clues and these messages and they've been hidden for a long time. And if they find the if they can expose whatever these messages hold it could mean the end of financial problems it could also help solve this more than 50 year old mystery that involves a murder and uh, all kinds of stuff that happened at uh, in the other timeline so it has Obviously, the two timelines come together in what I thought was a really awesome way. She always does that. And um, I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful read. The ending is, is it's happy. It's sad. It's touching. It's, it's just very, very good. So once again, that is The Magnolia Palace by Fiona Davis. Really True Confession Time. I've never read a book by her. Because I think on the last episode, someone mentioned a Fiona Davis, and I'm like, I haven't read any of her. And I think Shannon was about ready to beat me up then. Yeah, it's I been was, quite. You know, was what's your address long... again? But, um, <laughs> <you know>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh, my second book for the evening is The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. Um, I'm probably the world's biggest Louise Erdrich fan. Um, and so I was super excited when I saw this come out. And it actually was narrated by the author, which made it even better. Um, so this is a story about Tuki. And Tuki is uh, a Native American woman living in um, North Dakota. And she commits a crime and goes to prison for a while for that crime. And during her time in prison, she reads a lot. Like she literally starts reading the dictionary and then just reads everything she can get her hands on. And when she is released from prison, she starts working at a, at a Native American bookstore in Minneapolis. And if I remember correctly, Louise Erdrich actually owns the bookstore that the story is actually set in. Like she in real life owns the bookstore and in That's the story so cool. owns the bookstore. I'm sorry. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so, and Louise is actually a character in the story, which is even funnier. So Tookie starts, <laughs> yeah. So Tookie starts working at this bookstore and it is, it, it goes from um, All Hallows Eve of 2019 to All Hallows Eve of 2020. And during this time, a ghost starts inhabiting the bookstore. Uh-oh. And her, the ghost's name is Flora. And there is something that Flora wants. And at first, only Tookie can see her. Um, but, you know, as time goes on, like more people see her and they need to figure out what Flora wants. But during all of this from fall 2019 to fall 2020, a lot of stuff happened in Minneapolis, including um, the killing of George Floyd and also the pandemic. And so Louise Erdrich does a really nice job of incorporating those events and how the characters in the book react to each event. Um, you know, there's a there are some really poignant scenes around the protests in Minneapolis um, after, you know, George Floyd died. A couple of the characters go to the protests and, you know, it talks about like what happened to them. And then, you know, during the pandemic, when it got started as well. And she does a really nice job of talking about how the pandemic really, really affected minority communities, you know, the African-American community, the uh, Native American community. And there's a really uh, heartbreaking scene in the book where one of the characters actually gets COVID and, you know, Tuki is in the parking lot waiting because she can't go inside. Um, nice. And, you know, and it was really like the doctor, you know, kept coming to her car, you know, and saying, look, you need to go home, you need to go home. Um, and, it, you know, it talked about how, you know, the, the other person was in intensive care and, you know, they would literally hold an iPad up to the other person so that she could see them because she mm -hmm. couldn't go visit. Um, so it was a really uh, heartbreaking, but really you know, poignant novel at the same time, just really covering, you know, some pretty current events and, you know, just a really interesting take on what was going on in Minneapolis at that time. Um, 
and you know how the characters reacted to it. So that book is The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. I was so... really excited about this book until the ghost popped in. That's what I was okay. So <laughs> the ghost, like, is... how much is that gonna? It's it's not. She's not creepy. She's not scary. Um, she's just kind of. She's almost like a character. All right. So my next pick is The Mad Girls of New York, Nellie Bly, book one by Maya Rodale. This one won't be out until the end of the month. I'm sorry to talk about it when it's not out. Well, I'm sort of sorry. I'm sorry that you can't just like go get it right now. She's not um, sorry. She's not but, sorry. And don't, I, I don't edit sorry. that out either. <laughs> she is pretty much saying nana, nana, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nana, nana, boo boo to you, re- dear <laughs> podcast listener. I and if she could, and if she could, she'd go <laughs> too. <laughs> don't edit that out either. I'm not going to edit that. <laughs> but when I saw the synopsis for this, and I read it, it just seemed so, so perfect for this episode. So as a lot of people know, Nellie Bly was a famous reporter in New York City in the 1880s. And she went undercover as a mad woman so that she could see what things were really like inside the Blackwell Asylum. And I'm not sure exactly how Maya Rodale plans to like turn this into a series but it it looks like she does because it says Nellie Bly book one so this is a fictional account of Nellie Bly's time in the Blackwell Asylum and kind of how that all came about you know how was she approached to do this like what did she do to actually get herself um, committed and how did she get out Um, but most of the story just sort of details her treatment there Um, Before I read this book, I actually picked up 10 Days in a Madhouse, which is the original story that Nellie Bly wrote. And I just kind of wanted to see like what the author did to fictionalize it, you know, what things were added, taken away. Um, And I thought that she did a really stellar job of bringing Nellie to life and like letting us see her more as just more than just like the woman who wrote this very, very famous um, piece of investigative journalism, but actually just as a person who did this, you know, who had like dreams and desires of her own that sort of led her to this very unconventional and dangerous um, you know, type of work. Um, it's, it's hard to read. I keep saying that, but it is, it's, you know, you read about a lot of really abusive situations. Um, people in mental asylums, you know, were not treated at all well. And we get to see, you know, kind of how this, how this is. Um, and the interesting thing is that once Nellie was in the hospital, in the asylum, she stopped all pretenses of being insane. And so she just like conducted herself like a normally sane person and tried to get people to like evaluate this and look at her as, you know, the person that she is and no one cared like what she said, like what information she offered them. Like you were just in there. And once you were in there, you weren't coming out. Um, There are a couple of 
fictionalized characters who are thrown in here that kind of give us information about what's going on on the outside while Nellie is at the asylum. Um, there are two other reporters that we kind of get to know um, during you know, the course of the book. And I am really looking forward to seeing how Maya Rodale plans to like bring this into a series. Like, you know, what <clears throat> else is Nellie going to get up to? Um, you know, we know that she did quite a lot of writing once she had gotten hired um, as a journalist. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays out over the course of the series. Um, I really enjoyed this. I like Maya Rodale a lot. She normally writes um, historical romance. This is definitely more of a historical fiction with a little bit of like hintings at a possible romance, but it's not the like main you know, point of the plot. Um, this is The Mad Girls of New York. It's Nellie Bly, book one, by Maya Rodale, and it will be out on April 26th. I will be looking for it on April yes, 26th. I will also. Were... So my next book tonight is The Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn. And this book is about um, a Russian sniper who is a woman. Um, her name is Myla, and she had um, 309 kills by the end of the war. So we first joined her. Um, she is a student at a university. She's doing um, a map, like she's doing a thesis in history. She works at a library and she's a single mom she we um so her son was born when she was 15 so she met a man who i can't remember exactly how much older he was but he was much older than her and he just kind of like became all her life and then she had her son and he kind of just disappeared. But every once in a while, he would kind of pop in. So his name is Alexei. And one day she comes home from work and her son's not there. Um, and her parents are, her parents take care of him when she's at work and at school. And they let her know that Alexei has picked him up and taken him to the shooting range. So she's kind of upset about this because um, her son is only seven years old at the time and Ooh. this is not really an appropriate age for a child to be at the shooting range so she heads over and she gives Alexei a piece of her mind like she he tells her but also kind of like he's pushing into her son's mind that he needs a father and that there's only there's certain things that only a father can teach and so it really bothers her son that his father is not really around and he's all worried that, well, if I don't spend time with my father when he wants to, then I'm never going to learn these things. So she decides that she tells her son, don't worry, you do not need your father. I will be your mother and your father. So in order to do this, she decides that she's going to learn to shoot. So she ends up doing a big, like a whole 
bunch of courses um, in shooting. And she becomes an amazing, amazing marksman. And this is how, and her whole like kind of like motto that she kind of works through from then on is that she will never miss. And so when the war comes around, this is World War II, when it comes around and they start calling for people to come and join, she kind of thinks to herself, well, what would a son's father do? And of course that means, well, I would go and I'd join the war, right? Because I want to make my, the world, my, I want to make Russia a good place, or at least the world a good place for my son. So she joins the war. And so the first month is kind of spent just digging hole, digging trenches. Like that's what they put her doing. Um, they try to usher her off to the medical division, but she's like, no, I know how to shoot. I'm really good. You're like you, I need, I need to be on the front lines. So as she does this, finally, um, I think it's about um, maybe two months later, she ends up working beside this man who's in the trench together and he's got a gun. She does not, she's got a shovel. Um, that's her job. And he ends up getting shot and she ends up having, taking his gun um, and kind of shooting her way out. And then the, uh, her, uh, her um, like commanders realize that she is a really good shot. So we learn about her time as a sniper. And it's really, um, for me, it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating, um, the whole intricacy of being a sniper, how you have to like, learn all the different aspects regarding like the wind speed and like distance and she has to like work these out in her head um so as we go along she realizes that she needs a partner so she ends up going through different um groups of people and trying to figure out like who she feels closest with so then we meet um, Costia, and he becomes her like backup all the way through the book. And so we they kind of develop a bit of a like a closeness because obviously they're watching each other's back all the time. They're spending lots of time just waiting because that's a lot of time what you do as a sniper. We see her at different points when she gets injured. Like one time it was kind of funny. She ends up doing her thing, her shots, gets a whole bunch of high commanding um, German soldiers. And then she falls out of the tree. Oh. And she ends up in the medical ward with a, with a concussion and a big gigantic bruise. Um, there's some other situations where she ends up with, um, with injuries. So, the war is going along. And then in 1942, she gets sent off to um, the US with a group of people. Um, there's like this student conference that's going on. And she gets to know Eleanor Roosevelt. And they develop a friendship. And I thought it was so cool because so this book is written in first person. So it honestly feels like you're listening to Myla's voice 
And at the same time, there's little pieces where you get like Eleanor Roosevelt's diary entries about her time meeting Mila and meeting and the different situations that happen. Um, so you would honestly think that Alexei, that her um, husband would kind of be like gone, like she didn't have to deal with him, but he ends up popping in at different points along these years in the war. He's, um, he's a really, really well-known surgeon. So he ends up as in the surgery, like in the medical section um, of her division. So she ends up having to see him a lot of times. He also is very much into wanting to be like the top man and like be the most important. So he's kind of like following along on her tails, on her um, coattails. And it really bothers her. But no matter what she does, like she's been trying to divorce him for years, but he keeps like ignoring her demands and saying like, oh, well, we are belong together. And she's like, whatever. So he actually ends up coming over to the U.S. And so it's interesting to see their interactions and how she's constantly trying to push him away. And while she's in the U.S. as well, she ends up getting her sniper friend to be able to come as like her translator. So even though she's able to speak English, the, um, the Russian embassy feels that it kind of looks a little more authentic if she just speaks Russian. But I really, really enjoyed this book. I thought it was slightly longer than it needed to be, but like that was really my only, I guess, complaint. And so I highly, highly recommend this book. And she's honestly a big inspiration to me. So this is Diamond Eye, and it's by Kate Quinn. I really like Kate Quinn. Yeah, me too. I think this is actually my first book by her. Uh-huh. I haven't read, like, I didn't read um, the Alice, what is it? What's it called? Alice, Alice Network. Network. My second book is Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. And some of us might know a few details about John Wilkes Booth, but most of us, including me, did not ever learn very much except that he shot Abraham Lincoln. And uh, that, that was it. Um, but this book t- is a great look at his family and at what some of what made him who he was. So in 1822, a very secretive family moves into a cabin about 30 miles northeast of of Baltimore. They want to be hidden. They farm the land. And during a 16-year time span, they have 10 children. Uh, They don't all uh, live. Um, The patriarch is Junius Booth. And he is a Shakespearean actor, which is how he supports his family because that's a big deal at the time is to act uh to do Shakespeare and he is um he's very good at it sometimes it seems like he thinks he's better than he is sometimes it seems like everybody thinks he's he's wonderful he is very 
terrifying and very unstable on the flip side of that coin of being a, a, a great actor. To his family, he is very scary and he rules the house in more ways than one. Um, so the country during these years, of course, is drawing closer to secession and the Civil War. The Booths basically have always always took the stand that it was okay to have slaves, but they didn't, you know, it, it, they never did, but, but that slaves were happy and that their lives were good. And so leave it alone. Um, At some point in, after the 16 years the Booths decide to come back into the public eye and take their place as a, really major theatric family. Um, But behind the scenes, there's tons of scandals, tons of of just lots of strife in the family, deaths of the children, uh, that that the mother and the oldest daughter just never get over. There's one son in particular that they just adored and he died while uh, they were traveling. And uh, some of what John Wilkes has to deal with is that they sort of compare him to this son and want him to sort of replace him. And he has a lot of, of, of sort of pressure to be as good as, as him or, or something of that nature. Um, the oldest daughter has a disability, so she, of course, doesn't get married because who would want her? Um, is the the idea. So she's largely a mother to, to the children because the mother spends most of her time, well, she was pregnant a lot, and but then she spends a lot of her time grieving and just is really not very approachable. So we see John as a kid. He starts to do the things that we connect sometimes with uh, people who don't have a stable personality. He harms animals. He plays nasty tricks on uh, his brothers and sisters that are not always uh, safe and harmless. And he just sort of, he's terrified of his father. Um, And his father wants every son to be as great an actor as he is. It's just sort of a given that they must do this. Only they can never be as good an actor as he is because he's not going to admit to that even if it were true. He's critical, he's judgmental about everything they do, but if they'd stop doing it, that's no good. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty hard roller coaster to ride. So John starts to get more involved with politics as the war uh, grows closer. Uh, he starts to take a different tone than his parents. He starts to think that slavery is abs- is necessary and that if the if black people were free, they would not know what to do with themselves. They couldn't manage their lives. And so this is a favor. They, they have to be doing what they're doing. And they're very happy. They don't want freedom. He convinces himself and whoever he talks to that they don't want freedom. 
Um, so he also believes there's a prophecy connected with this family. It's, it, get, it gets talked about and mentioned, and we don't really quite understand it until later in the book. But John wants to understand it, and he wants to fulfill it. So he sets about to do that. He acts, uh, does the Shakespearean thing when he needs to, to make everybody happy, get a little money. And then the rest of the time he hangs out with a lot of unsavory um, political folks. When the war starts, he just becomes more and more hateful of, of Lincoln and the North. And he just, he believes that, that they're just a scourge and that they're just, they just want to destroy the South for no good reason and nothing that they, they want is, is right. And he just, he's full of anger. He believes he knows what the prophecy is at some point. And we know what he thinks the prophecy is and he is going to fulfill it. And being an actor, he can disguise himself. Being an actor, he can get into theaters and into places where he won't be asked any questions. So the night of that play, he can walk right up to Lincoln and his wife because nobody's going to question him. He's, he's a booth if, if they know who he is. Um, and so he can walk right up to him. He, can, he chats with him a bit and then he shoots him. And he has fulfilled the prophecy. He talks a lot about that from prison when he's caught. He talks about justice being done and no better man to do it than him. He's on the run for a while, but he is eventually he's caught. His family, sometimes they help him. Sometimes they hate him. It's, they, they just, they have a lot of conflict about how to try to deal with what he's done. Um, they write letters to him. It's so there's just, there's a lot that we learn about all of them. It was very fascinating to find out about these characters and about him. Um, not the most functional family that we could see. Um, she did an awesome job, uh, I thought, and this was a great read. Uh, it is Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. And it is very different from the other book I read by her that was also wonderful. Oh yeah, we are all completely all beside, beside yes. Uh -huh. Yes. I was just thinking that that's a huge departure from it is a very big departure. Okay. Um so my last book for the evening, uh, I will give you a warning. Uh I may or may not have read the ending at work yesterday, and I oh. totally ugly cried. <laughs> uh so there is that. Um <laughs> And it was super awkward because then I had to go into a meeting and people were like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, allergies. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so confession, confessions of uh, uh, Amber. Uh, so my last book is Five Little Indians by Michelle Good. Um, and this oh, is a I Canadian book. Yeah. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Hooray. Um, I've read it. So I loved it. Yeah. Did you ugly cry too? I definitely cried. I don't know okay. if I ugly cried. Okay. There's a, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's very few books that I, I've, I've, I've ugly cried for some, but I don't really. Yeah, that's okay. 
Okay. Mm. I was scared. I, I normally don't cry over books either, but this one really. Oh, oh boy. man. If it's a dog, okay. if it's a dog, guys, then I ugly cry. <laughs> oh, okay. That's fair. That's people, fair. people are like, whatever. People, nah, you know. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so this book, it follows a group of Native Americans during their time at an Indian boarding school and and what happens to them during that time. It was a Catholic uh, boarding school and then afterwards, and even in some cases before. Um, so you follow various characters. There is Kenny and Howie, who are two of the, of the boys. And Kenny actually escapes from the school. Um, and then there is Lucy and Maisie and uh, oh, I can't remember the other girls. Clara. Clara, I think. Clara. Yeah, Clara. Um, and it, it happens during like the late 60s, early 70s in and around the city of Vancouver. Um, but then it also brings in, you know, what happened at Wounded Knee. Um, in South Dakota, um, you know, it, 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 one of the characters becomes involved in like the AIM movement. Um, and, you know, just how their time at, you know, the boarding school really affected each person and then the community as a whole. And there is one scene where, you know, a little boy is taken from his mom and like, he wasn't even a resident of that area and you know what his mom went through to try to get him back and you know they just just the blatant you know racism and you know like it's it's one thing to hear about it um you know like secondhand or you know from people who lived through it but for me, sometimes like reading in a, in a, in a book actually helps me to realize just like how egregious it is. Not that it wasn't, but it just kind of makes it a little more real. Um, and, you know, it, it's just how the community, you know, tries to deal with this huge loss of their children and their culture, um, you know, and just family ties and, you know, how some people, you know, deal with it and, and some people just can't and, you know, how the church, you know, just really, and anyway, I, I'm not going to go into that. Otherwise that'll be like a 25 minute rant. Um, so <laughs> you should, you should definitely uh, read this book. Um, you know, it, it does cover, you know, some interesting time in history. Um, it is all fictional, but definitely based on true events. Um, the author's mom, was uh, was in a boarding school and, you know, she um, kind of learned ab about this from her mom. Um, so again, the book is Five Little Indians by Michelle Good. It's interesting that you're talking about this book because just recently, like the last week, um, Pope Francis has apologized. Yes. Um, formally yeah, to um, the survivors of the residential schools here in yeah. Canada. So I thought that was pretty, it's very interesting that you're talking about this kind of a 
very up to date kind of thing that we're yeah, dealing with and, right now. And I, you know, I, I, I actually had started reading the book quite a while ago. Um, and then I actually saw that Pope, you know, the Pope did his apologies and, yeah. and that actually made me finish the book. Um, yeah, I, I won't say anything else, but. So I had a really hard time coming up with my third book. Um, I thought about doing The Lives of Diamond Bessie by Jody Hadlock. Um, I thought about. Oh, she's title dropping. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about rereading um, Story of Beautiful Girl by Rachel Simons. Oh. So what I ultimately decided on was a book that just came out um, on April 5th. This is Four Treasures of the Sky by Jenny Tinghui Zhong. And this is the story of a Chinese girl who is kidnapped, um, you know, what we refer to now as, as sex trafficking, and taken from China to the United States in the late 1800s. So she's living in China. Um, Her parents are gone. She's just kind of living like on the city streets. She wants to be a calligrapher's apprentice, but no one will allow her to do that. Like she can't, you know, find a position. And she is one day snatched by a man on the streets and taken to this room where she has to live for something like 380 days. And he teaches her English and, uh, you know, like basically makes sure that she's going to be the kind of girl that, you know, white men will want to have sex with. And once he thinks she's ready, he sends her on a boat in a bucket of coal so that no one knows she's there, like a huge coal bucket. And she is brought over to the United States and is made to work in a brothel. Um, This is during the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so, you know, they have all these like very sneaky ways of bringing Chinese people over to America against their will. Um, And then, of course, even Chinese people who wanted to come here couldn't because we decided that that was bad. So now she is living in this brothel and obviously you know, was not, not happy. And so she hatches a plan to escape and she is going to go to Idaho and be in like a, like a mining town. And she figures that she can disguise herself as a boy and hopefully you know, travel safely and be able to start a new life in Idaho. So I have not actually finished reading this. I'm a little over halfway through, but I am completely engrossed in this story. And I think the author does a phenomenal job. Um, Dayu, who is our heroine, is just so well-drawn and relatable. Um, And the author has done just so much like research into what that time period would be like for a Chinese woman, you know, on her own and how she needed to, you know, kind of pass as a Chinese man. And even then, like things weren't, you know, great for her. Um, I think, you know, we learn a lot about 
the American West and kind of that like westward expansion, but it's always told in sort of this like heroic kind of way, you know, that like white men, you know, settled the West and we hear about like all these supposedly great things that they did and they were usually like rather terrible things. Um, but we don't hear so much about like the non-American people who helped to settle this land and who were treated very, very badly um, for no real reason. So this is Four Treasures of the Sky and it is by Jenny Tinghui Zhang. I'm gonna look for this book. Yes. So my last book was recommended to me by Shanna because I couldn't decide on a third book. Um, I'm doing Grown by Tiffany D. Jackson. And this is kind of loosely based on the R. Kelly situation. So our main character's name is Enchanted Jones. And she is from a family that doesn't have a lot of money. Um, and she wants to, she wants to sing. Like that's her, that's her dream. So the book starts with Enchanted um, waking up with a huge headache and she's covered in blood. And she looks over and beside her, not too far away is Corey Fields and he is dead. So Corey Fields is a famous R&B singer. So now we go back and Enchanted, as I said, wants to be a singer. And her friend tells her about this like competition that's going on. So she talks her mom into taking her to the audition and she goes, it's kind of in a way I, I kind of see it as being like um, that show, The Voice. So kind of like that kind of thing or American Idol. I would kind of guess that would be like something like that. So she goes and she loves to sing songs that her grandma liked. Like she likes that kind of old soul kind of stuff. So she sings and she's not chosen. So she believes that she's kind of like wondering like, was it the song or like, is it the whole package? So she's in, um, in the back um, off stage and she's making her way back to her mom and she meets Corey Fields. And Corey decides that he can make her a star. And he really kind of like, being like she's 17 um, and he's 28 and she's enthralled because like this is like this famous guy Corey Fields like everybody wants to know Corey Fields so he ends up taking her under his wing and it's this is a really uncomfortable read like I was telling Shannon as I was reading I'm like oh my god I, I'm, I'm so uncomfortable <laughs> I was having a lot of trouble reading it um, so he sends her like text messages um and she you can really tell that he's grooming her um he ends up suggesting that she join him on one of his um concert um road trips he says that um she would make a great backup singer for him so she ends up convincing her parents to let her go even though they've got a lot of reservations like they're very uncomfortable about how close Corey is becoming with their daughter so she goes off on the trip 
and we begin to see glimpses of what Corey is really like. Um, along the way, while they're on the road, there's this scandal comes to light. A woman, um, a young girl, has gone to the gone to the police and to tell them what Corey did to her. So he ends up telling Enchanted that they need to keep their like friendship or relationship very hush hush because of the scandal and he doesn't want people to know like what's going on. Um, he ends up kidnapping Enchanted and becoming very controlling. He takes away her phone. He tells her lies about her family and some really uncomfortable things just happen for her. And as I said, like um, he ends up dead and there's an investigation that takes place and so we get glimpses into the investigation and into like what has happened with Enchanted and how her feelings around what happened. As I said, like this was a very uncomfortable read, but at the same time, I felt it was something that really needs to be out there. Like people need to know about these things because I think it's so easy for young girls and even like probably young boys even to get like stuck in these situations so this is grown i know mm-hmm. and this is grown by tiffany d jackson i will have to read this so my final book of the evening is my Dear Hamilton, a novel of Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, and it is by Stephanie Dre and Laura Kamoy. And they really did their, their uh, homework, their research for this book. They used uh, thousands of letters and original sources to put together a very... Uh, wonderful and as accurate as possible story of Eliza. We all know a lot about Alexander, uh, even if we didn't see the play, Uh, but we don't know as much about his wife because we often don't know as much about the women. And uh, most of the time, I, I think their stories are the best, uh, the fullest, the richest. She was the daughter of a very rich, well-known family, a military family in upstate New York, the Schuylers. And like the nation at that time, she was very involved in fighting for independence. Um, She fought in any way she could for the independence of the America to become a new nation. And she also wanted independence for women. She was very strong, outspoken, intelligent, and she did not want to be in the role that women were at that time. She met Alexander at a party that her father held in his home, and at that time, 
Alexander was an aide to George Washington. Uh, and it, it almost seemed uh, that they were just something magical happened when they looked at each other and they were drawn together despite the fact that they had very different backgrounds. Uh, and whatever they had seemed to be very strong because it held them together through lots of heartbreaking events that would happen in their lives. Um, and that's not to say that they everything was easy because certainly it was not Eliza struggled so much throughout their life together and after his death to understand who he was, the good, the bad, all of it. He kept a lot of secrets from her um, throughout their, their time, throughout his life. He kept his affairs from her, which he had several of that we know of. Uh, one of them was supposedly with her sister, although that's not a proven thing. One of them that we that became the first public sex scandal, as a matter of fact, was with a woman whose husband then tried to blackmail him. So the scandal became very public. And this really made the uh, opposing factions of, of Hamilton very happy because it gave them something more to use against him before they had used his birth against him because he was born of a bastard birth and did never know who his father was. His mother was a prostitute and was jailed for that crime before his birth. So they had fun with that, but then they needed something new, and this gave them that. But also, in terms of secrets, uh, their eldest son, when he was a young adult, uh, died in a duel defending his father's honor. And Alexander knew that there was going to be a duel. He knew about that. He advised his son... Uh, to shoot for the sky when it came time to actually shoot and not aim for his opponent. He was convinced his opponent would do the same thing uh, because it was really more about show than it was about wanting anyone to die. But that didn't work. His own duel uh, years later with Burr she also never knew about, he never talked to her about the, uh, a lot of what was going on behind the scenes with the rivalries. And she had no idea about that duel. And her first, the first thing that she knew that morning when she woke up was that he had been shot by Burr and killed in a duel. And that's tough. It's tough to have so much kept from you, so many important things. It was always either she never knew or it was too late for her. But no matter how she felt about all of that, and no matter how she felt about Alexander at different times, she worked tirelessly 
before he died and especially long after his death to make sure that his ideas remained important, that, that his writing got out there, that people didn't forget him, that he still had honor and decency and that he had a legacy. And that takes a lot of strength when you have lived such a hard life, a lot of which is due to that very man. I can't do justice to all of the ways that this looks at her life, but it's a great read, as I've said of all my books tonight. And this is My Dear Hamilton, and is by Stephanie Dre and Lauren Kamal. So this concludes our episode on books based on true events. Thank you to Amber, Brooke, and Christine for participating. And of course, Christine gets double thanks tonight for her editing as well as her participation. And most importantly, we thank each and every one of you for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm